I'm a high school senior, which means that for the past 13 years and for at least the next few years, school has been and will be one of the major parts of my life. But being a student with albinism brings some experiences that you might not expect. Hello, and welcome back to Albinism More Than Meets the Eye, a podcast that explores the realities and lived experiences of people with albinism. I'm your host, Esther Rosie Kessel. Today, I'm talking to Marissa Nisley, a college student and the host of the podcast, Legally Blonde and Blind. Her podcast covers all things related to being a blind student or a student with albinism. So today we're talking about school, what it's like to be a student with albinism, and what we want to see improve in terms of how students with albinism, visual impairments, or disabilities in general are treated. Before we start, I just want to go over a couple of pieces of terminology that you're going to need to know for this interview, specifically the terms IEP and 504 plan. Both Individualized Educational Programs, or IEPs, and 504 plans are legal documents that provide accommodations for students with disabilities. The primary difference is that an IEP provides both accommodations and special education services, while a 504 plan mainly only provides accommodations. Many visually impaired students have IEPs, which include both accommodations for their vision and services such as meeting with an orientation and mobility instructor who helps them learn to navigate their environment independently, and a teacher of the visually impaired who helps them with skills specific to their visual impairment. And now let's hear from Marissa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share a bit about myself. So can you just tell the audience a little bit about what you do and who you are? Yeah, sure. So I am currently a junior at Georgetown University. I'm studying management and accounting with a minor in disability studies. I started my own podcast called Legally Blonde and Blind two years ago about my experiences as a college student with albinism. And since then, I have been talking about everything from using humor to talk about my disability, employment, college, accommodations, anything you could think of that relates to being a blind student. And also one thing that's kind of interesting that I want to touch on is that you actually prefer the term albino to person with albinism. I do, yes. Can you explain why you prefer albino? Because I have said in previous episodes that it's a very personal preference. And I think that's a great way to start this whole conversation about that is it is ultimately a personal preference. And when in doubt, you should ask or default to person first language as to not offend like a stranger. But the reason I prefer the term albino is because I like to think of albinism as a characteristic and a part of who I am. I think the term sounds a little less clinical and medical. I think it's Mm -hmm. more of an acknowledgement as it's part of my identity. It's much like someone's gender or race or religion. It is part of who I am, and that's why I choose to use that word. It shouldn't be an insult. It shouldn't be something you shy away from. It shouldn't. For me, I will use it about myself, and I don't mind if other people with albinism call me albino, because it's just like we talk about each other like that. But I generally prefer when non-albinos don't call me albino, just because I feel like there's a sort of association with the albino, white hair, red eyes, like the movie stereotype, or albino rats, or, you know rabbits or whatever. But I also think that I don't want it to just sound super clinical, like you said. That's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I agree. Generally, my family and friends, I'm totally okay with them using it. I think for anyone, 
regardless of who you are, you shouldn't be like shouting across the room like, oh, hey, there's that albino. Yeah. I definitely don't appreciate that. But I do think we can take back the word and make it something that isn't a slur or an insult. Yeah, definitely. In your experience, how do you think students with albinism are treated in an educational setting by their teachers or their peers? Well, unfortunately, albinism, like many other disabilities, brings about a lot of discomfort in people. And so I think for the most part, in most school systems, I don't want to generalize, but I think albinism is treated as largely a negative, an impairment, something that makes your life harder. Um, I think with teachers in particular, I see two extremes with it. There's either one end of the spectrum where they're so worried about you doing anything that they underestimate your capabilities and they don't really give you the opportunity to learn on your own and to kind of spread your wings because they're so anxious about you doing anything. It could even just be like going outside. (laughs) Yeah. And I'd say the other end of it is there are a lot of people, unfortunately, I'm not one of them, that have experienced teachers that have tried to minimize it and ignore it almost Mm -hmm. and not provide the accommodations that they're legally obligated to. So overall, I'd say it's, it's quite a challenge. I think we're pretty far from a point where people view albinism as more of a neutral thing. I think now it's mostly just, oh, you're blind. That's a shame. Right. I just had a funny memory that um, my friend told me that what she remembered about me from kindergarten was that I wasn't allowed to use scissors. Like apparently the teachers were afraid that I was going to cut myself if I used scissors. Yeah. So they would cut things for me. And I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I might've cut myself, who knows, but. Well, I think it's challenging for educators in particular because they, if they're in a general education system, they probably have not had an experience working with a blind or visually impaired child. So they don't know what the expectations are. Yeah. And they don't really know how to act. Yeah, no. A lot of teachers kind of think that we are either less capable or need to, like, kind of be protected in some way. That's a sense I've gotten. And I'd say the same almost goes with peers, with people our own age while we're going through the school system. It's either something that they're almost afraid to talk about and try to ignore, or in the case of some people, which, again, fortunately, I wasn't really in that case, they get bullied for it. It's something that you're made fun of for. And that's why so many people, to the first question you had, that's why so many people don't like the term albino, because for a lot of us, it was hurled as an insult. I was never bullied specifically because of my albinism and visual impairment, but I was bullied. And I don't think that standing out for like the teachers uh, treating me differently or like holding things closer to my face helped. So how do you think visual impairment and albinism affects how students view themselves. I made an episode about this a while ago. It was called Gifted and Talented Blind Kids. And this isn't this doesn't go for everybody, but I think a lot of us in the community feel this sort of pressure to prove ourselves and to be overachievers in the classroom because we see these low expectations that teachers or even parents have for us. We almost feel this need to say look at me, I can get straight A's, I can get X score on the SAT despite my visual impairment. And it creates a lot of pressure, I believe. Yeah, I kind of think when I was younger, I always thought that when I did something wrong, or 
when a teacher gave me a lower grade, I would think that that meant that they thought that because I messed up on one assignment that I was, you know, just not smart. Yes. Which it's kind of a silly way to think, but that was that was how I perceived it. And I really doubt that my teachers actually thought that, but you know. And what the scary thing too is when you're the only person with albinism someone has ever met. Right. Or the only per- blind person someone's met. You get this fear that if I don't act completely perfect and competent, like I have everything together, that they're going to discount not only me, but everyone else with my condition. And that's really stressful. It's not a burden you should put on yourself, but I mean, a lot of people do feel that way, including myself sometimes. Yeah. How has your view of yourself as a student changed over time? Oh, so much, so much. So when I was in when I was in middle school and high school, I was your stereotypical overachiever. I did mock trial, I did DECA, which was like a business competition. I always had straight A's. I was desperately avoiding getting a B. I was deathly afraid of lowering that GPA. I obsessed over colleges. And like I said, I think a good part of that came from that pressure I felt to prove myself, feeling like I had to show that, hey, I'm the smart girl, almost to so that people wouldn't focus on my blindness. Because I noticed that when I did really well in school, even at a very young age, people would start to focus on that instead of the disability. And as someone who was deeply uncomfortable being disabled at the time, I wanted as least amount of attention towards it. But as I got into college, and I think this happens especially for people who aren't thinking about going into grad school, you start thinking more broadly about what am I interested in? What do I want to do after I graduate when there isn't going to be a grade for every single thing that I turn in? And that led me to a place where I realized that I didn't need to prove myself like I thought I did, that, you know, I'm, I have value that I deserve to take up space and that my value isn't dictated by grades or a test score or even like the amount of followers on social media, all of those things. Those are just numbers. On the level of accommodations and things like that, how is college different from high school for you? So I'd say college is different from high school because there is more of a burden on you to fulfill your accommodations. You're not going to have a high school guidance counselor or vision teacher that's going to do everything for you. So I'd say to anybody who is about to make that transition, I would look into what materials your school requires as early as possible. Like I started the accommodations process in May uh, before I started school and it, it, Didn't take two months to do, but it was nice getting it out of the way and getting it covered. Generally, you'll want something like if you've had an IEP or a 504, a functional vision assessment, or like a letter from your ophthalmologist or primary care doctor. So just getting those documents together is really important. And just the idea that like no one is going to hunt you down and make you get accommodations. You have to do it for yourself. And if you don't, like start early in the semester, you can basically end up in a position where the paperwork hasn't gone through and you have to do a test without accommodations. So it's really important to hop on it as soon as possible. One thing that I've experienced is, and I'm guessing a lot of other visually impaired or other people with other disabilities have experienced is that in high school, we're, we're kind of told that we have to advocate for ourselves 
And I remember in like ninth grade, I hated that. <laughs> then I kind of found that once I started talking about it more and started advocating for myself more, I think that my teachers kind of understood what was going on with me more and that helped them treat me more like a regular student. What's interesting is what I did in high school, and I believe at least at the end of middle school, was that I would have a meeting with all of my teachers like the week before I started school to explain all of my accommodations and my visual impairment. And I, I don't I don't remember exactly how that originated. I think it was I heard about one of my IEP meetings in fifth grade and I was like, why am I not in the room when they're talking about me? <laughs> but it's been a really powerful way to advocate for myself in front of teachers and to slowly build that confidence over time. Like it's a it is such a process. <laughs> I didn't attend my IEP meeting until 11th grade because my ninth grade IEP meeting was online. That was when COVID hit. Oh, yes, the pandemic. I, I went to like a few minutes of it. But the 11th grade one, that was the first time that I really gotten to like be a part of that. And it wasn't, it was a little bit weird because hearing all these people just like talking about me as if I wasn't there felt very jarring, I guess. But it did kind of help me get to actually have a say in what was going into my IEP. And it's challenging with IEPs because there are a lot of assumptions that educators make about people with them. Like the idea that there's usually the assumption that it's some kind of behavioral or learning disability. And I remember that some of my teachers would be shocked that I was in their AP class or their honors class, I think, because they went into it assuming that I would be in their like lower level one. I had an experience in 10th grade. I, I have no idea if this actually had anything to do with my IEP, but I, I just like have this like vivid memory of being in online school and we were doing this thing where we had to, we, we could volunteer to play a character in this Dr. Phil show based on this book we were reading. And I volunteered to play one of the characters. And I remember my teacher being like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like she was so surprised that I would volunteer to do that. And then she gave me a 10 out of 10. So there you go. When you were younger, is there anything you would have liked teachers to have done differently to make you feel more comfortable? Or are there things that teachers did that you really appreciated? Sure. I think if first to my point that I was saying earlier, I wish more people, teachers and students approach disability from a standpoint of curiosity rather than fear. I think being open to asking me questions and not treating it like it was something to hide or that it was something like quote unquote special that had to be given in like a presentation would have been very helpful. I remember in first grade, I believe it was my vision teacher who they did like this exercise where they had all of the students. It was so silly. They put basically like, you know, like those Ziploc bags, they like made little eye masks <laughs> out of them and had them put it over their eyes so that they could see what my world looked like. And actually, it's kind of accurate. So, <laughs> but it was cool for them to get a bit of an understanding of what it was like from my perspective. So I think more things like that, less about like, oh, this is this weird thing and more of like, oh, this is just how she sees and interacts with the world. Right. Another thing that I feel like happens a lot is that teachers will call out students, especially like when you're not super comfortable with talking about your disability. If you get called out in class for that, it can be really uncomfortable. Even I consider myself to be like pretty comfortable talking about having albinism. I mean, I'm making a podcast about it, but 
it still feels so weird to me when teachers will talk to me, like stop class and come talk to me about whatever. Yes. Another thing I did not like with teachers is like the sort of backhanded compliments when they're like, oh, I see how much you struggle every day, even just to read things, but you do so well. Like that, that's not a compliment. Yeah. I had a teacher last year who like, she was, I, she meant, well, I could tell, but like she would be, I chose to not sit near the board. I don't know why. I just like had friends on the other side of the classroom and I had a phone so I could just zoom in on the board, but she would be writing on the board and then walk over to the other side of the room and be like, can you see that? And I'd be like, no, but I I have ways of figuring out what it says. (laughs) Or there was another thing where we were like labeling a diagram and she was, she had the labels on the screen and I actually was not that far from the screen, but I couldn't read them. And I, I was just like listening and writing down what she said. And she came over to me and she's like, do you need me to like write this down? And I was like, no, I'm getting it. And she's like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, it's not it's not really a compliment for to say like somebody who is blind is amazing or inspirational just for doing something normal. Like writing something down on a piece of paper, it's very insulting in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, like I don't another thing is I think people don't realize that you don't need to see everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't need to see exactly where on the diagram this is because if you say where it is if you say the number on the diagram I'll just write what whatever it is yeah no I I agree with that I think it's I mean obviously having a visual disability does bring about challenges but it's not the end of the world exactly like this was funny about blindness to me is that people view it as this like massive tragedy like if you look at research people often equate it to things like heart disease or HIV AIDS and it's like being blind isn't going to kill you. I think we need to be reminded of that more often. I was just reminded of this recent, as as of when I'm recording this, this recent video from Mr. Beast. Oh! He, <laughs> yes. he cures a thousand blind people. Yeah, they had cataracts, I believe. Yeah. And obviously, I'm happy for them. If they wanted the surgery, they got it. Great. It does say something about our healthcare system that they have a YouTuber pay for this and not their insurance but the way that he talked about blindness as if they could never get a job or have a normal life without his his generosity yeah and a lot of my issue with it is people's reactions to the video people will say oh how could anyone hate mr beast he is doing these amazing things and i'm like sure that's great but i don't know people were kind of acting as if he did the most amazing thing that like anyone has ever done Yeah, and I think what was hard about that video, too, was that he was talking about, he was, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, curing one very particular cause of blindness and visual impairment, whereas, like, a lot of our conditions, like albinism, for example, you know, you really can't do anything about it, and there are a lot of people, myself included, who don't really want to cure. Exactly. And he didn't acknowledge that at all. (laughs) Yeah. So... Back to what I was talking about before. If you could talk to a younger kid with albinism or a younger version of yourself, what advice would you give them as they learn to navigate school with a visual impairment? So much. One I would say is to be confident in sharing your story. Mm -hmm. You have a valuable perspective and you should share it. It doesn't have to be something you need to hide. And 
This is especially prevalent when discussing things like college admissions. Disclosing you have a disability and how that impacts your worldview is not like giving yourself a leg up. I don't know if you've encountered people who have said things like, oh, well, you know, if you write this sob story about being blind, you'll have a better chance of getting into Georgetown. That's not true. Yeah. I think disability gives you a unique and valuable perspective that is worth sharing and does not mean you're taking advantage of the system. The second thing I would say is to explore different kinds of mobility aids and tools. I was very, very stubborn in high school. I did not want to use anything besides my laptop and my iPad. I refused to learn how to use a cane. Um, Now I'm a guide dog user, so that clearly changed. But (laughs) in high school, I was just completely against anything that would make me publicly present as blind. But I realized as I got older, like, I value my confidence, my safety, my happiness more than I value blending in. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've, I think I talked about this in my first intro episode to this podcast that a lot of us kind of feel the need to like mask our visual impairment in yes. a way. And I, I struggle with that too. Because we don't look blind. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed is like, like, even though I'm like, you know, making a podcast about this, I still have a lot of issues with like doing anything that makes me seem different. It's really hard. Like it's not a linear process of getting over it. But I would say, go to a restaurant by yourself. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. It is such a confidence builder, like, to just be allowed to exist in a space by yourself. You can just enjoy your surroundings. And the the caveat to this is don't, st- like, don't stare at your phone the whole time. Like, bring a book and just enjoy it. And acknowledge that, like, hey, I can take up space by myself. I don't need to provide a justification. It's a huge confidence builder. I did it today, actually, with Smalls. We got brunch. Mm-hmm. That's my guide dog's name, by the way, Smalls. Yeah. My final question is, what is one thing you wish more people knew about life with albinism? That it's not entirely negative, that it also has added so much to my life, I would say. I mean, just the fact that I created this podcast, all the amazing people I've met, through Legally Blonde and Blind and the blind community as a whole. My guide dog, I've only had her for a few weeks, but she makes me so happy. There's a lot of there's a lot of joy and beauty in it. And it's not just, oh, this lame visual impairment. Yeah, I think that is really important to know. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I highly recommend that everyone check out Legally Blonde and Blind on all the podcast places. <laughs> Yeah, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, pretty much anywhere you look. I have uh, social media, Instagram at Legally Blonde Blind. Also have a Facebook and LinkedIn page. And then I have a website you can check out, LegallyBlondeBlind.com. It's a really great podcast. And even if you are not visually impaired, you can learn a lot from it. It's funny, people who listen to it sometimes, like my dad's friends... Mm-hmm. like white men in their 50s and 60s <laughs> definitely not the target demographic for my podcast but it's cool hearing from them they're like oh i learned a lot about this mm-hmm. good for you yeah no definitely it's a really great podcast and thank you so much for joining me today i hope you enjoyed this episode of albinism more than meets the eye again that was marissa nisley for more details about the things we talked about in this episode or to read a transcript please check out meetstheeyepodcast.com. If you liked this episode, please leave me a review or a comment. I'd love to hear from you. 
Thank you for listening.